Jay King, Celtics beat writer from The Athletic. Uh, great all-around guy. Thank you for popping on here, man. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? My pleasure, man. Doing great. So, I remember that – I don't remember exactly what it was, but that Maverick Sunday game um, where the Celtics hosted Dallas at TD Garden and actually lost. I remember I hadn't watched Boston for a bit, and I was sitting there on my couch – and I started scratching my head, and I was like, huh, I think the Celtics might be the best team in the league, let alone, like, the best team in the East. Here they are in the finals, start Thursday. After all the Jason Jalen questions and all the Dennis Schroeder drama, and well, not really drama, but, you know, just the, the fit issues, here they are. When did you, as someone up close and personal, start to really believe that this could be a real outcome for, for this group under Ine Doka? Probably sometime in March, because their their turnaround started in February, uh, maybe a little earlier than that. But it was mostly coming against just awful teams or teams that were really beat up. And they pounded the Kings by 900 points. They pounded just team after team. But early on, it was just bad opponents. And so I was skeptical especially after a year and a half of sub-500 play. But as time started to go on, it was like, oh, (laughs) they can actually do this against the better teams too. Their defense is unbelievable. It just reached another level during that second half of the season. It was already good before that, um, but just totally dialed in after that. And then the offense started to take shape. And I think Tatum and Brown – became much better playmakers. They started lifting up the guys around them. Uh, The trade deadline came, and Brad Stevens got rid of Schroeder, who, like you said, just wasn't a good fit, brought in Derek White, who was a great fit. And all of a sudden, the Celtics had an eight-man rotation of guys who were basically all plus defenders, some of them all defense type defenders in Marcus Smart's case, the defensive player of the year. And you just looked at it, at it and it was like, oh, okay, there's, there's an identity there. And uh, obviously that, that started to form, it took a while to form. <laughs> they were really bad for a while. I think a lot of the questions about them at that time were totally legitimate, but, but they've answered them and then some over the past few months. Yeah. I mean, they were 11th in the East, if I recall correctly, in like late January. Yeah, and, January 16th was the last day they were in 11th. And Smart is brought up in trade conversations every year. It's just kind of like a, a, an annual tradition at this point. But like, there were definitely legitimate packages that were being discussed about moving him. Um, and I think they were really open to a lot of things outside of Jalen and Jason. Like, like th- th- this was not a, a a team as as recently as you know late January, early February before the deadline that even you know people in Boston were that high on about the ceiling of this current group and thinking about I mean I think some things from people I've talked to on the team like they 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 didn't really struggle to find the on ball like ball handling lead kind of key ingredient with this Jason Jalen pairing basically dating back to the days of Kyrie. Which, I mean, when you have Kyrie and then Kemba and Gordon Hayward, like, sure, there's not going to be enough opportunity really to give those guys the ball. And then 
bringing in Schroeder, I mean, definitely, uh, definitely, um, you know, when you bring in someone like that, obviously he wasn't a massive free agent signing, but they, they, like he wasn't a, a max contract guy or even someone who was making double digit uh, in, in the millions. But like, you clearly have to try to incorporate him into that group, being that the ceiling of what he, he is as a player is a six man of the year type guy. Um, and it just kind of seems like they found this perfect fit of having the ball bounce back and forth between the two Jays where Marcus is kind of almost playing like a Lonzo ball type point guard role, which is interesting being that Boston definitely poked around on him last summer too. And they just kind of found this perfect thing where at times Tatum's kind of even operating the offense in like a Luka type role. Yeah, I think the vision for this team when Brad traded Kemba and brought in Al Horford was that as much as they would sacrifice by no longer having an all-star point guard, which they really had like five straight years with Kyrie and Isaiah Thomas and Kemba Walker. um, They just decided if smart plays point guard, they would sacrifice some offensive creativity, but also his passing would help. And especially defensively, they could be awesome. And, And they felt like that was a way to separate themselves because, you know, you look at all the two-star duos in the league and Brown and Tatum stand out sort of in a way that Kawhi and Paul George stand out, which is that they're not just very good to great offensive players. They're also super talented defensively and long and versatile. So they figured because their stars are like that, if they could surround them with all size, all good defenders, then they would have a chance to just have a a mammoth defense. And and that's kind of what happened. And offensively, it took a little while to figure out what they were doing. And I I think Tatum and Brown, you know, as good as they've been for years now, to do it without that all-star type point guard next to them was was just a change. And Ime Odoka came in with a new voice, new system. And it just took a while for everyone to figure that out. Uh, but I think, you know, as the year went on, that vision of, of using smart at point guard and having just a huge lineup, especially on the perimeter, it, it, it really allowed them to separate themselves and, and have an identity that they've kind of been looking for, for, just a couple of years. I guess I guess they had an identity when Hayward and Kemba Walker were both healthier and they went to the Eastern Conference Finals in two thousand twenty. But they were kind of searching for something after that and and they found it and just kinda of ran with it over the last couple of months. For those who have just joined us, we're on with the Athletic Celtics beat writer Jay King. Um if you got any questions for us on, on the Celtics on the finals, please call in. Um, Jay's got to run relatively soon here. I think we only have a half hour with him, so I'll definitely hang around after he exits to talk about Portland, OG, Toronto, whatever you guys want. Um, but for now, we're talking Boston, looking ahead to the finals. And I, I think one of the interesting things, I mean, I obviously look at the league now through the transactional lens. One of the things that I, I'm interested to see in terms of the outcome of the finals, um, people – you know, the rumors about Brad Stevens potentially wanting to go back to coaching are never going to die 
as long as he is wearing a suit and not a sweatsuit on the sideline, right? And, I mean, who's to say how legitimate they are, but they're going to be out there. Do you think that, before we get to that, like, reality, do you think that the Celtics winning a championship in his first season as an executive plays any factor into that conversation at all, either direction? Being that, you know, like, you would have reached the mountaintop, if you will. Um, do you think that plays any – think that's anything that's at stake here in this Boston Finals appearance? I have no idea, honestly. Um, I know that he loved coaching, and I know that um, obviously he was very good at it, enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. But I also know that he was worn down over the For last sure. couple of years. And and those were tough years like that, that – his second to last year coaching was in the bubble and or finished out in the bubble. And so for three and a half months, he's a huge family man. He's, he's away from his family coaches. I, I believe we're not allowed to bring any family members into nope. the bubble. Uh, not until like the like finals, the conference I think, finals yeah. or something. Yeah. So, so that really wore on him. And then they come back from that and the next year the regulations were really strict in the NBA and I, I don't think a lot of people understood that like he could not go to his son's high school basketball games because of the regulations which I think really aided him like he's from Indiana he, he was a high school basketball star in Indiana that that part of his son's life means a lot to Brad to to appreciate and to enjoy and, and taking that away was was really a lot for him. Um, so I, I think on top of the struggles that the Celtics had as a team, like just the entire circumstance of those last two seasons really, really wore on him. Um, so, it, I mean, it was still shocking to me that, that he went to the front office. But as you look back on it, you can understand um, why the coaching piece of it Kind of, kind of weighed him, weighed on him over the last couple of seasons. So, yeah, yeah I, I honestly, I don't know, like what the allure of coaching to him is now, but, but he does seem happy in his current role, and obviously he, he's been pretty, pretty damn good at it so far. He's been exceptional at it, and by all accounts, from people I've talked to, he pretty much runs the show, almost as like an, like an isolation act. Like he's got pretty much the same size front office that Danny Ainge had back when Danny was running things. The Celtics have always been known to have one of the smaller staffs. Um, but it sounds like when, 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 you know, certain teams, when trades happen, it's an assistant GM contacting another assistant GM. Uh, they've, they've got a relationship and they start haggling things out. Um, it really does sound like he's the one on the phone, making the calls, making, uh, you know, making these deals come to fruition um, I mean, obviously there's other people involved and I think like the Derek White trade, for example, the connections with the Spurs staff with Will Hardy and Ime Doka and others like that's, that's obvious. That's real. Right. Um, and I think they identified him as someone who could kind of be another guard like Marcus Smart in that he's, he's two way, but also he's not necessarily high usage and he, he is a connective player. He's someone, I mean, I, I think, person is watching it from my couch and I'm not an X's and O's expert like some 
of our media brethren, but I, I find Boston sometimes they're even more lethal offensively when they use Smart or White as the high screener and they can get those guys in a roll situation and have them play making, you know, um, in a lopsided court, in the half court, uh, four on three or whatever, three on two, whatever it is. Um, so like, clearly they take influence from other people in, in the organization, but this really sounds like it, it's, you know, he, he's made this team in his vision and obviously he had it hands on every day and kind of knew how to mix and match um, what he wanted. But it's also, I remember that first year with with Hayward, um, I remember they, they opened the season or their, or their road opener was at the Knicks. Um, and I was at that game and I remember watching that team come out and it really kind of like was a positionless like six eight six nine all got all those type of you know switchable guys um and it kind of seems like and they're not they're not running out like a death lineup warrior situation obviously they play rob williams and al horford together a lot um but that is kind of the scheme that it seems like they they, they are running and and the roster that brad's kind of compiled here yeah and and he, I think the 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 Kemba Walker trade and and the acquisition of Al Horford just kind of set them up to to do that. Al Horford, when they acquired him, there were questions about whether he could still play power forward because it was so bad when he was next to Joel Embiid a couple of years ago. It was he still good enough to to help out a contending team? You know, at age thirty five after a year in Oklahoma city where they were so bad, they sent him home for the second half of the season. There were legitimate questions and concerns about what Horford could bring. The fact that he's been able to play four and this season, he, he defended isolation as much as anyone in the entire league yeah. at any position. And the numbers with him in isolation were just awesome. And so he's guarding guards. He, he's sliding onto John Morant when they play the Grizzlies. He's sliding on to just any type of player. Kevin Durant when they play the Nets. And and at 35, he's able to hold up. He's been able to play huge minutes throughout the playoffs. He played 44 in Game 7 against Miami. And, and that really set them up to have a great defense because then Robert Williams emerged as center, and they found a way to kind of use him as a, a help guy where – he, he usually guards the worst perimeter player on the other team and just helps off, and it's kind of like a free safety. And and then when you have Marcus Smart, who can guard fives at point guard, and Al Horford, who can guard point guards at big man, it, it's just like a super versatile defense. And, and Brad just – he always said, as a coach, hit singles. And I think that's kind of what he set out to do as the GM, you know, he, he went and got Horford, which actually saved the Celtics a little bit of money and he gave up a first round pick to do it, but he figured Horford would help a lot, give them a veteran voice on top of everything he brought on the court. And then the Derek white acquisition was just another single, you know, he's not the flashiest guy, not a guy who's going to score 30 points every night or any night really. Um, but, like he just does a lot of the things that Celtics needed. And so they gave up another first-round pick to do that. They still have all their future first-round picks, so 
they still have flexibility to make a big move in the future if if, if they can find one. Um, but for now, you know, Stevens has, has built a, a roster with guys that are under contract for years to come everywhere. Um, and that, that should be a contender for a while. And I think, I think they will. I, th- I think they will look to find a, a proverbial third guy. Like, I don't think they're going to be the Lakers in 2019 trying to get Kawhi to pair with AD and LeBron. But, you know, Derek White isn't, this, isn't really that type of player. He's, like you said, more of a more. I'd say he's probably more of a double than a single. Um, but I mean, they, they poked around on Jeremy Grant before the deadline, like, like pretty briefly. I, I don't think those talks got very far at all. I wrote that back around the deadline. Um, I do think they're going to want to try to find some type of third piece that can really cement, you know, this team as, as being a perennial title contender. But they're already kind of there, right? They were, they were in the conference finals two years ago. Last season was – I mean, now it looks like a blip. It, it, it looks like, you know, potentially what this team was maxing out at back in January, like we talked about earlier. But, you know, they're also now that, they, that they've broken through and they've established themselves as, as being this finals contender. I think they're, that's going to probably increase their chances of players wanting to stick around there if they did get traded to Boston, too, or, or you know, an outright for agency signing or because – the way that the league has evolved in terms of cap calculations and how complicated the salary books are getting with all these super teams and the player movement we're having, I think we're just we're forever now in an era where sign and trades are going to be possible in any scenario. Like you know, no one was really pinning Lonzo Ball to Chicago, for example, or, and Demar Derozan at the same time. Like, but it happened, so. I think Boston will be a player in that type of um, chase for for a a third guy at some point. I don't think it's going to be their main focus, but I think it will kind of be a bit of a guiding light. Um, Because I I, I was kind of told that was a bit of what they were looking to do um, this year as well. But all that being said, the switchability, the Al Horford of it all, the defense – it's to me making out for what I think is probably one of the better finals matchups we we could have asked for, and uh, I'm curious how you think uh, Boston will try to defend the the Warring Warriors' beautiful game offense. Yeah, I think they'll kind of approach it the way the Rockets did, you know, a few years ago, where they'll switch a lot and try to take the Warriors out of the beautiful flow that they usually have. Um, I think Al Horford's ability to switch and Grant Williams' ability to switch and hold up against the Warriors' perimeter players, which is obviously really, really difficult. They Adding Jordan Poole to that mix has made them even more dangerous from outside than, than they've been since Kevin Durant left, obviously. Um, and... Like it, it's really tough to guard that team right now. And I think the way that they're playing with Poole, Steph, Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, who's been great throughout the playoffs, it's they they're a lot to guard. But I do think the Celtics will switch. They they won't have any problems or they won't have any concerns about putting Marcus Smart on Draymond Green or Kevin Looney, Kevon Looney. They they will have they won't have any concerns about you know, Grant Williams or Al Horford sliding out onto one of the Warriors guards for 
brief stretches of time. Um, and obviously the Warriors are still going to score. But I, I do think the matchup with all of the Celtics' defensive versatility, they, they're better equipped to, to take the Warriors out of some of the stuff they want to do than most everybody because, you know, most teams have to double Steph Curry. And then that opens up Draymond Green, who's one of the best at dissecting a defense if he gets a four-on-three opportunity. Or that, that the attention you have to put on Steph opens up Clay Thompson on the weak side or Looney, you know, cutting to the middle. Like there's just a lot that you have to deal with, with the Warriors. Uh, and it'll be a totally different series for the Celtics after playing Giannis who didn't want to shoot and Jimmy Butler who rarely shoots threes. Like it's just a totally different challenge for their defense. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how, how much of a shock that is to them when when all of a sudden you go from Kyle Lowry who's banged up and Jimmy Butler who doesn't want to shoot from outside most of the time to Steph and Clay and all those guys who can just make it rain. Were you at that game in Boston? This this is going to be a, a total uh, a total random pull out of the hat. But were you at that game in Boston at the start of the fifteen sixteen season? Where the South, the the Warriors came into town, still undefeated to start the year. Um, yeah, one hundred six hundred four, and was it double overtime, overtime, whatever it was. Yeah, and that was the first time we really saw the death lineup like fully. In act. And I remember Brad talking about it like a year later or so. And I wrote something about it when I was still like kind of interning for Slam Magazine. And it just that's a fun like personal tidbit that I'm looking forward to, just having in the back of my mind as I watch the series. Because like I, I really do think that game was super influential for Golden State moving forward, um, and I think a lot of it was based off of Boston's personnel at the time. And to see it all come for full circle and how both these teams are kind of made in a in a similar image, they're very very different, obviously, um, but. Similarities are pretty obvious to me, and I mean, I've been a little bit disappointed, as I think many others have, in terms of the competitiveness game to game in these playoffs. Like, I really think the finals are going to be a fucking bloodbath, and not, but not in like a eighty-nine to ninety way. Just like in a these teams just trading punches and having great offense, and the three point the three pointers are going to be flying. Like, I think it's just going to be a really, really awesome series, and I'm so pumped for Thursday night. Yeah, I think it has a chance to be a great series, too. And obviously, the Warriors' like experience stands out. Uh, they're in their six finals in eight years. Nobody on the Celtics has, has been to the finals before, which is kind of crazy. Uh, it is. You think about the difference in that. Um, Not even Nostaskis? <laughs> was he in the finals at some point? No, no, I'm just <laughs> I'm very uh, happy for Nick, by the way. Nick Staskis, great guy, friend of the pod. Not really, but I just talked up my book, and he was very, very lovely. Yeah, he's, he seems like a really good dude and someone who um, – his story is kind of crazy. He said he was ready to give up on trying to 
make it back to the NBA. And then a, a week later, he scored 100 points in two G League games, and the Celtics had called him to be on the roster. So kind of a cool story for him. Uh, but, yeah, the – like I, I do think this has a chance to be an awesome, awesome finals matchup. And it's, I mean, from a standpoint of the Warriors getting back there after all they've been through over the last few seasons and the Celtics getting there after all the setbacks they've had over the last four years since they were kind of the team that everyone thought was going to run the Eastern Conference for a while. And then they just had like one hurdle after the next to overcome and to for them to eventually reach the finals. Like it's it's a should be a great matchup. And I know Celtics fans have killed me on Twitter for the little clip of me on Sirius XM back in like December saying that I really did think we were at the beginning of the end of Tatum and Brown. And like I never ever ever thought and was never told that that was something that Boston was going to remotely entertain this year. But if they stayed in, as like a bottom of the tier Eastern Conference playoff team or even, you know, missed the playoffs like they were in in line with in late January, I do think that would have been a conversation this summer. So it's just a remarkable turnaround. And now, like, all the questions really it's, – it's, I, I honestly – I've been covering the league for nine years now. I think you've probably been doing a little bit longer than me. I can't think of a team that's had such a remarkable about face to the point where like they literally are looming as this Eastern conference threat for the next, you know, half decade. And when you talk to executives from other teams about like, Oh, you know, what do we have to do this off season to get better? Everyone is now talking about like, well, how do we get past Boston and Milwaukee and like, and bro- like the, they're right there with everybody else. And they're obviously the last one standing. So it's pretty, it's, I got to take my hat off to everyone involved because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stunned that they, that they've made such a turnaround. I really am. Yeah. It, it, it took, you know, the guys who have been there for a long time to reach another level for that to happen. And, for sure. You know, after Kyrie left and Horford left the first time and Hayward left, they were kind of down to their last Avenue to reach of finals or become a contender, you know, part of what Danny Ainge, the brilliance of what Danny Ainge did was that he set his team up for a lot of different ways to potentially become a contender. But by the time he left, it was like Jason Tatum had to become a top five or top 10 guy. Jalen Brown had to be a second fiddle. The rest of the roster had to fit really well around those guys because they didn't have enough to, to get that third, star and and move those guys down in the pecking order and so Tatum I mean his advancement as a playmaker over the last couple years has just been really impressive like he was just a scorer and and now he's dissecting teams with his passing and you know Jalen was like had to have other guys create for him now he's doing a lot more of that himself obviously he had some problems with his ball handling last series, but you know the growth that he's put in over the last three, four years has allowed him to to handle a lot of those creation responsibilities that Kemba Walker left behind, and and so like this this the group of core players 
really had to put a lot of work in to get to the level they are at this season and to put this organization in a place where it's back to being among the contenders. Uh, and obviously, Ime Odoka coming in yeah, being very ready for his first head coaching job has, has a lot to do with that. Another thing, too, people give Tatum a ton of credit, not just for the development of the playmaking, but also for his growth as being a leader. And Because he, he was definitely more of a lead-by-example guy from what everyone said. And now it seems like he's really become more of a vocal presence. And that video the team put out of Yudoka's speech after the game where they're all kind of yelling and doing the water bottle thing, like you, it's a 30-second or 90-second clip. It doesn't tell the whole story. But you can even see glimmers of that, uh, of Tatum being just kind of a, a louder, more confident voice in that locker room, which I think has played massive dividends overall too. Yeah, when he said, fuck that man, is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, <laughs> that's true leadership right there. <laughs> um, before you go, man, I always I always like to ask the guests. Uh, I've asked you a bunch of questions here. You got anything for me? You don't have to, but I like to put people on the spot. <laughs> I got nothing, man. All good, buddy. Well, get back to your girl. Safe travels to San Fran. I'm gonna make it up for a, a day trip to Game Three, so I'll see you in the in the bowels of TD Garden. All right. Beautiful. Sounds good. I will see you then, brother. Anything? Anything you want to plug before you take off? No, I'm not. I'm not a plug guy, except right. on Twitter. Then Follow I'm the Jay worst. at By Jay King and read all of his stuff at the Athletic. Um, I've got a half hour here to hang out, so the call in's open. I saw someone popped in there uh, for a bit, and then they ran away. We've got 73 people in this room. If someone wants to press that call-in button, uh, Jay's got to go. We got our first caller here from Brandon. Brandon, take yourself off mute. Uh, you're more, you're good to go. Hey, Jake, can you hear me? I got you. How you doing? Hey, how you doing, man? Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. You got it. How can I help? Uh, I got tons of questions for you that I kind of <laughs> submitted in the chat. Um, first off, I don't know how much you're allowed to like reveal or talk about, uh, but I I talk about the Phoenix Suns on YouTube and everything, and I was wondering what you think DeAndre Ayton's future in Phoenix looks like, and do you think the Phoenix Suns could potentially move into the NBA draft? Um, apologies for not seeing the comments. The last comment I see is from Raps fan. So, that's okay. uh, for whatever reason, if anyone else is putting in the thing, I, I, th- I only see the first three comments there from J dude ranch answer 99 and Raps fan. But, um, so I, I'm honestly working under the assumption that DeAndre Ayton will not be with Phoenix next year. Um, you know, there's someone I just talked to yesterday, though, an assistant general manager of an Eastern Conference team who pushed back on that pretty strongly. Um, so, I mean, the door is definitely open, though, I think, for him to leave, which is pretty, uh, which is, you know, pretty stark of a, of a turnaround from where things were in last year's finals, right? Um, right. I, I don't want to say too, too much because I don't know – what I'm really I have credence to say about the Monty Williams, DeAndre in relationship. But I wrote about that a week or two ago. And I do think that is something that 
you know, is, is a bit deeper than just him being benched for the final 17 minutes or whatever it was of that game seven. I, I do think there is some frustration there on both sides. And also, like I wrote, you know, people around the league, multiple, multiple people have told me that Suns people told them that um, when they brought back, or when they brought in Bismack Biombo, basically off the street, right? Like he wasn't playing. He was at home. Yeah. He was working out. And, and, and CP turned him into a pretty reliable, you know, replacement level rim runner guy off the bench. They kind of saw, they kind of saw that as an opportunity uh, to potentially, you know, this team's going to get super expensive with Cam Johnson coming up and oh, yeah. all the other money coming, coming into play. Devin Booker's new deal is going to come in very soon too. So, I mean, it's not just them. A lot of teams around the league look at the center position as one where they might be able to get away with paying someone more of a mid-level type salary than, than an overall max. So, I, I think a lot of those data points collected together, to me, seem to point to him potentially exiting and there being a lot of interest around the league. So, there could be potential sign-and-trade opportunities for Phoenix to do so. Um, but then again, he was the number one pick and he is an Arizona product and um, that was a huge factor, I think, in picking the number one at the time. Um, and they obviously, you know, were two games away from winning the finals a year ago and were the best team all season long this year. So those are other data points that are leading it going back. But it's just – it's very far from from obviously being a, a guarantee he's he's resigning, right? And that, to yeah. me, is, is, is noteworthy in itself. Yeah, I, I appreciate that feedback, Jake. You, you do really great work and – us Suns fans right now, we're, we're trying to recover from a terrible, embarrassing playoff elimination. And <laughs> any inf- any information, man, we really appreciate it. So I appreciate you having me on, man. You got it. I appreciate you, Thanks, uh, Jake. you taking the call. All right. Uh, let's see, Zach. We, uh, we got my producer, Zach, here. What's going on, man? Hey, hey Jake. Unfortunately for Brandon, uh, I am a big, big Mavs fan. So sorry for <laughs> that, Brandon. Um but uh, so I got I got a Mavs question for you here, Jake, and uh, with Brandon kind of opening the floor to, you know, individual teams. Um, you know, it's no secret that really since the Mavs won the title in 2011, you know, they basically blew up that roster. The hopes of and the quote yep. is getting a big fish in free agency from Dwight Howard, Chris Paul, Darren Williams, uh, even going back to like last offseason, Kyle Lowry, really the only big big get we've ever gotten is Harrison Barnes or Chandler Parsons. And so that definitely doesn't move the needle. And I think the narrative this year is at least what we're being told is Nico Harrison will have a different level of success there. You know, he had this one, you know, interview with local Dallas media saying the maps will get a seat at the table. And I'm just wondering how, whether it's specifically with Zach Levine or I know they said they're probably going to retain Jalen Brunson they need to get a big man. Miles Turner's been talked about. Do you have any intel or info, even in the vein that you were just talking to Brandon about DeAndre Eaton, about the Mavs' chances of actually being able to improve the roster and if there's any reason to believe they would be any more successful than they were in the past? I, I think there is reason to believe that they'll be more successful than the past with the Nico stuff. Um, I mean, they've made some other hires on, like, super savvy cat people um, that I think will – end up paying, you know, a lot of dividends there. Um, the Jalen thing, as I wrote today, I mean, the Mavs have been, Mavs people have been saying for weeks that they're super confident they're going to keep him. I mean, around the league, from other teams, from other agents, 
everyone is kind of discussing that detail as if it's shut and dry and that Jalen will be going back to Dallas. Um, I mean, that, that might not be the case, right? Like I wrote today, like the one thing New York can offer him that Dallas can't is a clear, obvious starting role if the Knicks are, are able to, to move salary and, and create the space to sign him. Um, but outside of, outside of that situation, I mean, Dallas was active in looking to move Tim Hardaway Jr. at the deadline to try to see, free up some space and see what they could do there. Um, you know, I, I don't think they're going to be attached to um, – other players like a Josh Green, let's say. I mean, I think there's definitely optimism he can continue to improve. But you know, if he's a trade piece to go get, like him and someone else, and a, and you know, picks or whatever to go make a move, like I, I do think they're going to be look to get aggressive here. The Zach Levine stuff is definitely real, like Mark Stein, um, first put out there in terms of their interest. Um, but and I, I do expect Levine will go back to Chicago. I think a lot of this stuff is just. Um, them kind of canvassing the market and, and, and really starting to look elsewhere. I, mean, I do think the DeMar dynamic is real and that Zach, you know, from my understanding and from conversations I've had with people around Chicago and around him, that DeMar being this MVP candidate and the guy running the show in the fourth quarter with Zach standing in the corner, like I do think that played a factor in him potentially looking elsewhere here. But the Bulls, I mean, I, I do think he will still be – a member of the Chicago Bulls when it's all said and done. So when you look elsewhere, you know, are they going to be in line for a big star this summer? Probably not, but they will, they will be able to make some changes and upgrade. Um, You know, Stein kind of poured water on the Rudy Gobert thing. um, Thank God. Thank God, by the way. I'm I'm, I'm glad that happened. Yeah. Yeah. With Aiton, I mean, one thing that's interesting is he's got the same representatives as Luka Doncic does. Um, So is that some synergy that makes you know, help there maybe, but I also don't know what the Mavs could send back to Phoenix in a sign and trade that would really, you know, make that deal work. Um, so I, I don't have any specific names for you right now in terms of actual upgrades. Um, but I do to answer your question about like their their feasibility of doing so. Uh, I think they're going to be active and creative and aggressive, and I do think that there's going to be at least one significant change to the roster in terms of the the upper tier of their rotation, but. I think it's a little bit too early, at least from my understanding right now, to kind of predict a little bit of what those options are. Sure. Uh, and just one one or two us quick follow-ups before let Scotty uh, hop on. But So would you say if you had to just pick one that some deal happens or nothing happens, if you had to pick one right now, I know it's early, would you say like come October, yes or no, a significant change has happened in the Mavs like core rotation? I think yes. I think that Hardaway deal, like they were, they were, they were trying to use his deal to go get someone like Karis Levert. Like I think that is something that is very doable for them. Like like a, like a second tier type starter, uh, a number three, a number four type player. I think is very much in the cards for them this year. And and, and that's a sorry. Last question. Uh, but you're good. That's a pretty tradable. You know, Mavs fans get delusional about everything but that Hardaway deal was like four for 74 four for 78 but declining like he made 19 million this year his last deal he makes 16 million um are we naive are Mavs fans naive for thinking that's like a fairly tradable contract or is that like a pretty you know because Hardaway didn't have a great year before he got hurt but before then like I know I think the Pelicans last offseason offered him like four for 88 so you'd have to think like that's a pretty tradable contract right 
or no? Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to write about the Davis Bertans, Tim Hardaway, uh, Duncan Robinson contract situation about how all those big money shooter deals kind of lost value like a new car a second off the lot, right? Um, yeah. But even still, like we saw Davis got traded. We saw Buddy Heald got traded. Like those – because shooting is so valuable in this league right now, those deals definitely have – they still have juice to get moved. It, it, it's not going to be that difficult to, to put – especially when you're stacking salaries to get to a $20 million salary or $25, $30 million salary to get somebody for a team to take back a shooter. It's – they're, they're definitely movable. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jake. Appreciate it. You got it, man. All right. We've got Scotty. Scotty, feel free to unmute yourself. Oh, Scotty just took off. All right. Well, if anyone else has a call, a question, feel free. We've got 76 people in here right now. Scotty's back. Scotty, feel free to unmute yourself. Hello. I have you. How are you? How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good, good, good. I'm a, I'm a resident Toronto Raptor fan, and uh, today you uh, dropped an article today that got a lot of us uh, percolating a little bit interested in what you what you dropped. So the headline says, "Does OG and Anobi want out of Toronto?" And then uh, we read a little bit further, and then it kind of says. Um, maybe he doesn't want out of Toronto. Maybe teams hope he Scott, wants out of Scott, Toronto. You, you keep uh, you keep uh, going in and out. It's hard to kind of hear you. Oh, sorry, sorry. So I just had questions about your article today, where you were um, insinuating that OG and Anobi might want out of Toronto versus. Um, I just wanted to know. Maybe you can just uh, maybe give us some more information on that, because when I read more into your article, it said maybe that other teams were looking and hoping that. OG wanted out of Toronto. Did you get that? Yeah. So I couldn't hear most of the question, but obviously it's about OG in Toronto. I heard more information, so I'll just kind of ramble for a bit. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's been word going around a lot of team executives since like March or so um, about the fact that maybe OG on Anubi is unhappy in Toronto and, and, and maybe that he wants out. And from people I've spoken with, as I wrote in the story, and, you know, the headline definitely was what it was. To, to con- I mean, I don't write the headlines. My editor's got to do a job to get people to click and read. But if you read the story, you know, we, we really expounded on as, as much as I really could in terms of writing, knowing that things get screenshotted and aggregated and all that. Um, but, I mean, his role clearly got diminished a bit at times this year. And he's someone who, from – my conversations, you know, views himself as a top tier player in this league or on that path to being so. Um, you know, some people think that the Scotty thing has directly promoted some type of jealousy or what have you. I've been told that that's not the case. Um, but basically, there's enough information out there in and around the league that, um, you know, there's some type of friction about his role in Toronto this season and moving forward. And um, on the flip side of that, regardless of whether the rappers are really interested in moving him or what have you, Portland has been repeatedly characterized to me as a team that's like very much trying to go make inroads to go add OG Anubi through their trade exception to go pair him with Damian Lillard. Utah has certainly put, put 
OG on their list of potential guys that they would want to potentially bring back if they were to move Rudy Gobert. Um, those are not right now. But even, you know, I talked to several teams yesterday um, or people from several teams yesterday about, you know, what have you heard? What do you think about OG? And, you know, everyone in the league would love to have OG on a newbie. So I'm sure the word of him being unhappy and wanting out is getting spread around because, yeah, if, if that is true, which I think it's partially true, I think he is looking for a bit more of a clarified, bigger role in the offense in Toronto. I don't think he wants out of Toronto. Um, but, you know, these players are, are people, and, and they change their minds every day. And who's to say if, you know, the Raptors take another 6-9 combo forward in the draft here, maybe that, that, that dial of, you know, being a little bit dissatisfied, unhappy to wanting out, maybe that does swing all the way to the left side. So um, for now, I just felt, like it was something that was being discussed enough amongst people around the league that, um, and and I again like the Portland and Utah overtures of interest is very real. So that was what I what I had what I what I thought was a I mean a topic taken off today. I thought it was the most interesting and relevant piece of intel that that I've been hearing from people both with teams and agents and what have you. So that's kind of a a wrap up of of what I can say. Okay, thank you. I, did, I just had one more question, actually. I also saw you, uh, you you made a follow-up tweet that the Raptors might be interested in DeAndre Ayton. So is that something where you would see maybe an OG and an OB for DeAndre Ayton? And maybe what else would OG's value maybe get back? Because I don't know if a seventh overall pick really moves the needle. I mean, OG's really important to uh, our whole 6-9, uh, 3 and D uh, lineup. So I heard DeAndre Ayton. <laughs> it's hard to hear you again. But yeah, I... I... I should have included him in the in the in the beginning of the story. I was a, just a a mental gap by me because he's definitely. I mean, the Blazers, um, uh, Detroit, um, Toronto. I'm trying to recall off the top of my head other teams I've heard have been have been linked for him. Um, I mean, the the Raptors starting center thing has definitely been a thing. Which, to be honest. It hasn't made much sense to me being that they have kind of run these, you know, six, nine lineups, switchable lineups out there and kind of positionless stuff where Pascal brings up the ball, Scotty brings up the ball. Um, but there's been, there's been word for a while that the rappers are, are looking for a center. And it goes back to when Andre Drummond was traded from Detroit. And then when he was in Cleveland, the rappers were one of the teams circling Drummond before Cleveland ultimately bought him out um, and he signed with the Lakers. The Jared Allen stuff last year was very real um, before he just immediately re-signed with Cleveland. They were poking around Miles Turner and Sabonis at the deadline. They, they, they talked about uh, Yaka Pertl. Aiton is definitely a name that's been mentioned as someone that they are looking at. That, that would seem to be a sign trade mechanism too. So, you know, I, I don't know who would go back in that scenario. Like, we're still pretty early here in the offseason season uh chatter window um but all i can say is that there's been multiple multiple people around the league who have mentioned toronto as an interested team in deandre Ayton's restricted free agency situation okay that's all thank you very much all right you got it scotty we got about 10 minutes left here anybody else the call queue is open if not i'm gonna get back to my family here and the uh, overflow memorial day weekend and uh have some lunch, but any last second calls?
80 people. All right, we got Brandon coming back. Brandon, unmute yourself, my friend. Hey, Jake. Sorry to um, bother you one more time. This is actually a non-Suns-related question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder obviously have like a million picks for the next 10 years. Do you think it's possible that they finally realize, hey, we need to stop tanking. We need to get some players in here. Let's move some of these picks. So I guess my question is, do you think they're going to be active during the draft? And do you think they – I don't know how valuable some of these picks are, but, like, you never know with all the successful second rounders nowadays. You know, it's like draft picks are kind of like gold. So I guess my question is, do you think the Oklahoma City Thunder will be um, active during the draft? And also, Jake – Thank you so much for answering my son's questions. I was super nervous when I first <laughs> called in. I, I appreciate you, man. In the uh, environment. But, um, no, the Thunder, they're, they're obviously a very interesting team. Um, to, to answer your question, I, I mean – I don't. I don't think that's any. It's something that's in the near future plans of the Thunder in terms of trading their picks to go get um, immediate impact veteran win now players right now. I. I, I really don't. Um, I think if any team understands that to get superstar players, there's only three ways: draft, trade, and free agency, and that the big markets like Miami and LA and in theory New York. Um, you know, have better chances at getting those guys on the open market and have even better chances at keeping those guys if they trade for them. Remember Paul George? They swung for him with Indy. They re-signed him to a contract, and he still asked out to go to the Clippers. Um, I think if any, of, of any team, the, the, the Thunder recognized the most that their best chance of building a sustainable title contender for years like they did with KD, Russ, and Harden, it's through the draft year after year after year. And I, I, I don't think there's any real... I mean, Sam Presti kind of said something along these lines um, at his end of season press conference. Like he, I, I believe they're fully prepared to be one of the worst teams in the league again next year, especially being that you know, Victor Wembanyama out of, out of France is supposed to be one of the greatest draft prospects of all time. He's like a seven, he's like, he's like Giannis and Rudy Gobert's body. Um, so, and, and can shoot it. So, like I, I fully expect them to be right at the top of the line to try to take a crack at him, and, and people love um, Scoot Henderson too. Um, you know, in this year's draft, maybe we could see them use a future pick to move up from twelve. That I mean, there's definitely a lot of talk about the Thunder wanting to move up from twelve. Um, so maybe that's how they end up spending one of those future draft picks. But I think that's the only scenario I see them mortgaging any um, upcoming draft capital further than down the line in this year's draft. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it, man. You got it. Zach, you got something else? Yeah, just just one more uh, last quick one for the yeah. Western Conference. Uh, earlier in the call, you had mentioned, like, when we were talking about the Celtics, how the Celtics are now up there with really Brooklyn and, and Milwaukee as far as teams that in the offseason, you know, other teams think about how do we get past them. The West is really unique, in my opinion. Obviously, Phoenix seemed like far and away the best team, and then that happened in the second round, probably because Chris was hurt. The Warriors are great, but they're also getting older. 
Um, and the Clippers, you know, like in my opinion, if Kawhi and Paul George have been healthy, I think they would have won the West this year. So I guess my question for you is, is there a consensus like top three or four teams like there is in the East, like in the East, it'll be Milwaukee and Boston that teams in this off season are thinking, Hey, like, how do we get around this team? Or are teams more focused on just shoring up their weaknesses? Um, and, and just to give more context, like, I feel like the Mavs are more thinking not how do we get past the Warriors, but let's just upgrade our center because they're not worried yeah. about Kavon Looney. Um, whereas like, in the East, you do have teams thinking about these other guys. So are, could, could you shed a little light on that, potentially what the consensus is, if there is one? I mean, if there's anything close to the consensus in the West, I mean, everyone is scared of the Clippers for next year. That That, that is a, a guaranteed fact. Um, I mean, if Kawhi can stay healthy, uh, come back healthy and stay healthy, if Paul George can stay healthy, Norm Powell, Robert Covington additions were, were pretty huge, I think, just to round up the floor of that team. And they're still going to be continue to be creative and, and figure out ways to add. I'm sure they're going to be able to get some veteran minimum type guys to, to come chase a ring at, in that situation. And Ty Lue is Ty Lue's vaulted the, the ranks of being perhaps the most respected coach this side of Greg Popovich and Eric Spolstra. I mean, people really, really, really respect Ty Lue around the NBA. So... With that whole ingredient uh, list, like the Clippers are are, are looming as a, a pretty big juggernaut in the West. The Warriors, I mean, people are, aren't expecting them to go away anytime soon. Like they're super high on Jonathan Kaminga becoming this like new age bigger uh, Andre Iguodala. We've already seen Moses Moody have some uh, big moments here in the playoffs this season. Steph doesn't look like he's slowing down anytime soon. I mean, with Clay honestly missing the last two years like the big arduous rehab but that was two years of miles of, of game action that he didn't put on his legs Jordan Poole could end up being a perennial all-star the way he's playing right now so I don't think anyone's expecting the Warriors to go away anytime soon either um I mean Phoenix it's a really I mean everyone's kind of looking at what they're going to do this summer and, and the eight in question and other pivot points that they could could go with um, and Memphis, I think, is, is I mean, Memphis people and other people who know Memphis will say they're not going to make some big splash this season. They're going to, this, this off season, they're going to continue to build this thing organically and slowly, what have you. Um, but they've got a they got two picks in this draft and they've got an opportunity to move some things around to have max cap space to, if they want to go after Zach Levine or someone like that. I don't believe they will from the conversations I've had, but Throughout the year, a lot of team executives kept saying, like, oh, like Memphis has a big window here before they extend all these guys to go get someone on a max-type deal and really raise their ceiling here. It's still a, it's still a window that's open. I don't I, Again, I don't think they will do that, um, but it's possible. And, and, and that's kind of the top tier along with Dallas. Like, I don't think anyone's really, like, afraid of the Mavs, but – I mean, clearly they're coming. Clearly Jason Kidd did a phenomenal job. Um, and, 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 you know, there's also Denver with what happens with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. So the West is deep, and people talk about all those teams as being real threats. Um, but I, I do think, to kind of answer your question, like the near consensus is that this is the Clippers conference to lose next year. Thanks, Jake. That's, that's what I was hoping for. Appreciate it. You got it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining in here. 
Um, we'll be back on Thursday ahead of game one of the NBA Finals with a very special guest, my guy, ESPN, fantasy football extraordinaire, Field Yates, who's a giant NBA fan. Um, we're going to talk all about the differences in the leagues and just watching a league from afar while being uh, completely absorbed in another. Um, so it should be a really fun convo. We'll definitely talk about Intel gathering and sharing and all that type of good stuff too. So I'm um, not sure exactly what time about that yet, but Field will be the guest on Thursday. Um, look forward to having everybody back then. Thank you all for listening. And until then, take care and stay safe.